Hi everyone, welcome back to Invested, where we talk about wealth as being more than just money. Our partners Paul Rand, Joel Rand, and Sarah Minikari will bring in guests and industry thought leaders to chat about meaningful topics on personal finances, health and wellness, ideas for your business, tax planning, and other key issues that impact our lives and our livelihood. So thank you for joining us, and we hope you find our discussions not only practical and educational, but maybe sometimes a little thought-provoking. With that, let's get to the episode. On today's episode of Invested, we are very lucky to speak with Gary Rossi. Gary is a Vice President with Fidelity Security Services and Head of Fidelity's Personal Security Insights Program. On today's podcast, we take advantage of Gary's vast knowledge and experience and get his insights on not just basic cybersecurity, but also how to help avoid credit fraud, tips on travel safety, how to help guard against elder scams, and a whole bunch more. As we speak with Gary, you'll hear about his more than 30 years of experience as a private sector and law enforcement professional, and about his deep expertise in investigations, cyber fraud, and risk mitigation. Gary joined Fidelity Investments in 2003 and served as their head of corporate investigations for nearly a decade, where he led all of the customer fraud and identity theft matters, any money laundering cases, and cyber-related investigations. Gary frequently presents around the country, and so we asked him to speak with us today because he and his team have created a comprehensive anti-fraud program to help protect clients from sophisticated cybercrime. He's passionate about helping clients have a better understanding about current security threats and how to take realistic, appropriate steps to mitigate risk. With that, let's get to our discussion with Gary Rossi, and we'll bet you come away with more than just a couple of ideas on how to be more secure. So welcome back to Invested, and today we are very lucky and excited to have Gary Rossi with us. He is a Vice President with Fidelity Security Services and Head of Personal Security Insights Program. So welcome, Gary. Thank you for joining us. Uh, appreciate Honored you, to be here. Appreciate you taking out the time out of your, your busy schedule. I know uh, we kind of snuck in there with some other bookings you have on presentations you do all over the country. So thanks for making room for us. Happy to. Honor to be here. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about your bio during the intro, but can you just give us a little more color about your background and how you came into the, the current position at Fidelity? Sure. So I spent, uh, after doing a, a short stint in public accounting, so I'm a recovering CPA, uh, I ended Sorry up, <laughs> yeah, now it was a tremendous career and uh, and that's where I went to training in, in college for, for finance and accounting. But my main, uh, my main drive was to become an FBI agent. I had a passion as a youngster, and fortunately at a young age, it, it worked out for me. So I spent the better part of 14 years um, in the FBI. Had a really interesting career. For Primarily worked for Director Louis Free the time I was in. So I spent uh, 10 years as a street agent. And I was in a bit of a specialty program there. So I did a lot of white collar crime, high level white collar crime. I started out uh, not too far from you in San Diego, um, worked uh, one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in the country at the time, which was an exact replica of what Bernie Madoff did. So I really learned a lot about the criminal mind early on. And that particular case uh, led me to have a desire to do more proactive work because that case was more traditional based on interviews and documents. And although it was a successful case, I found it was much easier and efficient if you could get the words of the criminals on tape, videotape, audio tape. So I became an undercover agent. I spent seven years as a full-time undercover agent. If you saw the movie Wolf of Wall Street or Boiler Room, I spent, I worked on a team, it wasn't just me, spent four years of my life becoming business partners with 80 of the owners of these very, very sophisticated and profitable operations. So I learned a lot and some of the comments that we'll talk about today are from the lens of the adversary. So having been partners with them and understanding how they target their their you know potential victims and how they take advantage of them and how once they find someone to victimize, which is very similar to the cyber criminals we'll talk about, yep. it becomes a force multiplier. They start running other schemes. So it, uh, it's something that 
many of us don't really realize once you get on a list, you don't want to get on these lists. So you want to do things to proactively to make yourself a harder target. So I learned a lot about that. And then uh, I was very fortunate, if you ask me, if you ask my family, you may get a little different answer, uh, to go back to Washington. And I was asked and I eventually led, I was the chief of the undercover and sensitive operations group for, for the FBI. So we had about 200 undercover operations running all the time in a lot of different uh, elements, not just the criminal world, but also in the national security world, counterintelligence. And a lot of those operations back then, and that's going back you know, 20 years ago, were in the cyber world. So I have a 30% of those, by the way, were, were in the cyber world at the time. So I have a lot of understanding of who the adversary is, which we'll get to talk about. Oh, Gary, I'm sure you have stories for days. I have a few. <laughs> I learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes, but learned a lot. And, and a lot of us in that community love to give back. So we, I learned a lot from some talented men, men and women, not just in the U.S., but internationally as well. So if that was 20 or 30 percent cyber back then, what do you think the percentage is now that's cyber? Well, I can't speak for it, not, not actually working in it right now, what percentage are undercover operations, but... Um, there's probably a, a high percentage, I'd say well over half of them probably have some cyber elements to them. Yeah, yeah. Because we are constantly blown away about the amount of attempts that we see just in what we come across of what's going on out there. It's just, it's, it's astounding. So I'm glad, glad we could get to this. And, and we have, you know, a ton of questions and sure. we start with all the FBI stuff and go after that. <laughs> but we want to cover the stuff that's, that's in your materials. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that you talk about is, is making yourself a difficult target for cyber criminals. So can you just go into that a little bit and tell us, like, you know, what do you mean by that and where should, where should, we sure. start? Where should people start? Sure. So typically when I get into cyber, I like to under, people to understand it really in three areas. First, who's truly coming after us? Be grounded on who the adversary is. So I typically talk about that and the adversary coming after us, they're profit motivated. They're for-profit economic criminals. So time is money for them. That's the important piece because a lot of people understand and hear from the paper or otherwise that there's nation states who are coming after us who are very sophisticated cyber adversaries. And when you hear about nation states, the industry and people speaking in this regard are talking about the Chinese government, the Russian government, the North Korean government, the Iranian government, and those are sophisticated cyber adversaries, but their main goal typically is not profit. So yeah. they have time on their side. So it's, it's really important to understand the people coming after us. They're sophisticated and most of them live overseas, but time is money for them. And sometimes they get lazy. They're gonna go after the more attractive and easier targets. So I like people to position themselves and do two or three things that are gonna differentiate them from other folks. You don't have to do a lot, but you need to do two or, two, two or three key things, which we'll get into. Well, what, what would you say is like the, the first number one thing? What's, what's the easiest slam dunk? Hey, everyone, make sure you're doing at least this. Sure. So the, one of them is making sure you're using an extra password at login for the accounts they want to take over. So, so it's important to know not only who's coming after you, but you need to know at a certain level how they're doing it before you get into the tips. That way you can connect the dots why I think it's important to use this extra password at login. A lot of people call it two-factor authentication. Many people call it multi-factor authentication. But the bottom line is it's an extra password that it makes it much more difficult for someone to take over your accounts because most of the how it happens is these schemes that we refer to as an account compromise, okay? And usually those schemes are just two steps. They want to play you and I online. They want to get into your accounts or they want to get into your phone or they want to get into your email. And step one is stealing your username and password. Step two is moving the money. But the two-factor authentication, it will significantly hamper them on being able to access those three main systems. Again, they're the financial accounts where your wealth is. Your phones, because sometimes they want to be able to take over a phone call or a text message. And they can do that by going to your phone provider and logging in as you. So you want to prevent that. 
And third is your emails. There's a whole you know, swath of frauds by, by reading emails, both work, but also personal. So if you use two-factor, you can significantly hamper them. So Gary, for the two-factor, there's generally three options, right? It's either email you a code, call and give you a code via voice automation, or text you a code. Is there a preference or is one more secure yeah. than the other, or is it all kind of fair game? Uh, so I'm glad you mentioned that. So I would break it down first. And there's there's really two types of getting this six-digit code that that most firms offer. And we don't force it on folks. It's it's it, you have to sign up for it. And that's a key yeah. point. And the adoption rates are very low right now. So from a consumer standpoint, if you take the time to do it, you're going to make yourself a harder target because it's single digits. There's all kinds of studies out there, um, but it's, it's, it's single digits that people are signing up for. So, and the bad guys know that. So they know because the people who are doing this for a living, they're referred to as harvesters. Some people call them initial access brokers. So they're going to try to harvest as many of these as they can. And one of the key points there is they're going to test getting into these accounts if they're able to steal your username and password. And that's usually done through malware or some sort of social engineering through campaigns of phishing, text messages, inbound phone calls to trick you to give up your password or download malware. But the, the key here is most people aren't using it. And the bad guys, when they test to get in, if they see that box looking for the six-digit code, they're typically going to go elsewhere because they know 95, 98% of the people aren't using it. So that's really the key. You don't have to outrun the bear, but you okay. need to be make yourself a harder target. Really any of those three is, is well, added protection. Um, in my mind, like I generally don't choose the email ones. I feel like if they're going to hack into my stuff, they probably already have a way into my email. Uh, so I normally do text message, which I don't know if that's not safe for me to say that on this podcast, no. but confession, well, guilty. <laughs> well, let me, let me more directly answer your question. So there is, the, so first off, it's usually six digit codes that only lasts 30 seconds and only works once. Oh, okay, fair. Okay, yeah. so the, the three ways you, you mentioned it, email is the least secure. I would agree with you. Assume your email is taken over. I personally don't like trusting email accounts for codes. That's the lowest. Text messaging is good. You know, getting you have to give obviously your mobile phone. But the reason I like people to protect their mobile phones, that will make it much more secure if you use two-factor at your mobile home, your mobile provider. Yeah. And I'll use me as an example. I have AT&T. I've called up AT&T and I said, I'd like a passcode or a two-factor code so no one can make maintenance changes on my mobile phone. Oh, that way, it only takes a couple minutes to do. Yep. You only have to do it once because the bad guys will try to call up, say, AT&T and use a legitimate excuse to say, hey, I lost my phone or someone stole it or I vacation two months a year down south and your cell phone coverage isn't very good. So I need to forward the phone. So if they can authenticate as me, they may be able to intercept that text message for a short period of time or intercept the phone call. So you want to, if you're going to use text messages, the best way to use text messages, make sure you secure your phone as best you can. Okay. So table, so the, table stakes is two-factor authentication. That's a no-brainer. Right. That's, that's got to be done across the board. Yes. And the last, the, the most secure method in my view and the way I use it is I'll use a password authenticator. Hmm. And there's many of them out there. So there's one, we happen to use VIP access at Fidelity. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a semantic product, but there's many out there. So wherever folks have their wealth, they just need to ask that firm, what are your methods? If they offer a password authenticator, I would take them up on that. That way you, you load up an app on your phone and you're generating that code yourself. Nothing's being transmitted. So in my view, it's a bit more secure. Yeah. Yeah. We have that for several of our, for our interfaces too. And, and awesome. so we're, we're gonna, I know we want to jump into passwords at some point in time, sure. <laughs> but just going on that email, you know, we've had uh, criminals hack our client's email, not, you know, our email from our system, mm -hmm. but their personal email. And they'll go through and study, how does this person talk? What do they say? Sure. Where are they? Where are they traveling? And then really come back with an email that sounds like them and says, hey, can you please, you know, send this money mm -hmm. yeah. or whatever. So. That's one of the most common and actually the most profitable fraud, according to the FBI. We refer to that in the industry as the email account compromise 
if they're going after personal email or the business email compromise if they're compromising uh, the business email and it's for the sole purpose to read email that you're talking about a financial transaction i'll give you one quick example using me let's say i own a condo and i own it down in cape cod the way they want to get into they, they want to read my email to talk about the sale of that condo i'm selling it you know next week for 500 grand well if they're able to get my into my email they're going to see the email from my friendly escrow agent with the closing docs okay and now they just wait they're drooling at that point when they see the closing docs for 500 grand coming down in a couple of days they simply log into my email and the way they log into most of our emails is they take data breach username and passwords so let's say there was a data breach at linkedin or marriott bonvoy most of us reuse a password when we set up our email because we set them up five or ten years ago well, they just take, say, those LinkedIn email, username and passwords, they run up against Gary Rossi's email, and now they go right to my account settings when they're in, and they write a rule to forward all my email to them. That's how they typically get in. So in any event, let's say they hear about this closing, they just log into my email, they simply send an email to my escrow agent, and they say, hey, I own this property 50-50 with my brother, Ron. We set up a separate account to segregate the funds. Please wire the funds here. And you know the real Gary Ross has no idea that account was set up. You know, within 24 hours, they send the money overseas. It's not easy to get that money. Are. It is frightening. Yeah. Yeah, and they have playbooks on this, and particularly yeah. in the time of crisis, they know we're distracted. We know that they have we have this thirst for information. So, in any event, the best way to protect it is do two things in your personal email. First, log into your email and make sure the username and password that you set up is a unique one. You haven't used that anywhere else. That's number one. Number two, double down and use two-factor authentication. I happen to have a Gmail account. They use the Google Authenticator. Mm -hmm. So when I log into my email, I have to hit the Google Authenticator, put in my six-digit code. And it may be helpful to make sure you look in your email and make sure there's no rule already written to forward your email. Because yeah. if, you've, if you go to change your password and they already have the rule in there, you want to make sure that rule's gone. You know, and, and um, we probably should have sent you a list of, hey, here's all the things we want to make sure you hit on so that we can, you can back us up and what we tell our clients, because this is one of the top things is when we talk about doing wires to, even if they're buying a home or they're doing whatever, and it's their account, we always, always, always tell them, hey, we're going to do the transaction by phone. And we don't want to put any of the account numbers, any of the wiring instructions by email, uh, because that's too easy to be hacked. It's not convenient, right? Because no, we have, yeah. but, you know, and it's one of the things we have to go through. So, well, and that's what I, I applaud you for doing that. And, and I think most people are not trusting email now. But from my standpoint, you never want this to happen. And obviously, if it does, you know, you, you, you're, we, we have your back, you have their back, but I don't want anyone to have to go through and unwind one of these frauds. Because if anyone has gone through it, you know you have to work with credit bureaus and law enforcement and fraud departments. Not that we're not nice to deal with. You just don't want to have to do that. Like my earlier comments, if it does happen, they're going to run another scheme. So if you use two-factor like we talked about in your email, you secure your phone, um, and there's a couple other things we can talk about doing, they're going to go elsewhere. You don't even have to worry about unwinding these. Yeah. So, and you, you mentioned so credit and credit bureaus. Mm -hmm. Um, so a couple of things that come up when we're talking to clients and one is, hey, do we monitor our credit? Do we have a credit monitoring service? Mm -hmm. And there are some for free and there's some to pay for and some are more expensive. Mm -hmm. And then there's also freezing your credit. Can you, you know, kind of touch on what you think about sure. options and, you know, your, your opinion on this? Yeah. So the first thing I would do to, to make sure you protect people opening account in your name because the second part of that the frauds they, the first is is the easiest one for it. they want to steal your credentials and log in as you the movement of the money is obviously the the second step because they want to profit from it one of the things that they try to do to move the money it, 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 which makes it easier on them is if they can actually open up a new account in their victim's name so they do a due diligence they'll do what i'll, I'll call a digital footprint on the potential victim and they'll get you know, address, date of birth, social security number. They'll get enough information where they can log on to a major financial institution and try to open up an account. If they're successful in doing that, 
then that's an easier way for them to move the money because it's a first party transaction. And then they'll try to do other bad things with that account in your good name. So the best way to protect that is not so much from a monitoring service, is you actually as a, the holder of your social security number, I would have every adult in the household actually do a security freeze. You have to go to all three major credit bureaus, Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian. It's free, it's permanent, it doesn't impact your credit score, it doesn't impact any existing accounts, but what it does is it's a, it's a proactive block in anyone opening up an account in your name. Because all of us, Fidelity included, before we open up a new account, so if someone was to go on Fidelity and try to open up an account, before we can actually approve that in our back end, we have to check with one of the three credit bureaus. We have to check name, address, date of birth, social, or phone number. It's part of the Bank Secrecy Act, US Patriot Act. Most of us call it the know your customer rule. Yeah. So if you've frozen your, your credit, the bad guy who's trying to open up those accounts in your name to move the money, they can't do it unless they have your pin. So anyone that's frozen the credit that's, that's gonna listen to this um, knows you get a pin, you get a personal identification number. So you do have to keep track of three more passwords. It's a lot less of a hassle to do that than to unwind one of these frauds. So by simply freezing your credit, you can put a nice gate in there. Your, your, the other part of the, the question was about a monitoring service. So there's many third-party monitoring services out there. They're not that expensive. And one of the things that they offer, or many of them offer, is an alert service. So if someone is checking a credit or someone is, is um, you know, doing something that you know, pops on your credit report, you'll get notified. So for me, those are helpful, but I would do a little research before I would hire a company because you're giving someone else your personal information to monitor. Yeah. I would first freeze it yourself. And I'd also, before I would pay a third party to monitor, I would leverage the alerts that are offered where you do have your wealth because A, that institution already has your data and they know the transactions. So if you haven't set up alerts at your banks or at your investment companies, I would set up alerts. You can get a text message or an email if someone does something potentially risky, like opening up you know, trading stock, moving money, adding an account to your profile. You can get alerted to that. And that's really uh, something that you'd want to know about. So I would do that first. So these monitoring services, I would just be careful of knowing what their value is. I've tested out a number of them, and I'm not saying they're not effective, but typically you're getting told a day or two or a week after something's happened. So to me, if you're using two-factor, you've frozen your credit, you're leveraging the alerts, you're gonna, those are, I think, better frontline defenses than a third-party monitoring services. So I would put that in the category of the suspenders. It's an extra you know, blanket of being notified. And I would just do some research on if they say that they're providing insurance, um, I would I would actually contact your institutions first before you pay insurance to understand what's their fraud guarantee. So you have at least the frontline defense understood before you invest extra in insurance and just make sure you understand what they cover. Is there a downside to freezing your credit? Sorry, Gary, for interrupting. Is there a downside? Because I would imagine like I'm thinking of, you know, going through a refinance process. Mm -hmm. if, if you freeze your credit over a period of time, does that negatively impact your credit score? I'm not aware that it negatively impacts your credit score. It is more of an administrative step. So, but of course. So, yeah, so there could be some delay, but they're getting much better about that. And there's different options. And I'll just use myself as an example. So I've, I've had to have my credit checked a number of times. So refi or my son who... Uh, happens to live in New York City, I have the guarantor on, you know, on a lease. So you only have to unfreeze it typically with one though. So you would ask whoever's going to check. So I asked the landlord, who do you use to check credit? I simply logged on to Experian. I put in my pin and you can temporarily unlock it for a period of time. Hmm. And you can actually get a, a one-time code. I just did a, a, a purchase of a car and I got a one-time code from, from the credit bureau and they just, I gave it to the finance manager. So it is an extra step, but it's a lot less of a hassle than if someone can open up an account in your name. No doubt. So, yeah. The last thing I was gonna mention on the monitoring services, oftentimes they will advertise that they're gonna surf the dark web for you to find passwords. I'm not suggesting they're not gonna find something, but I wouldn't put a lot of weight in that personally because there's so many criminal forms that are out there in the dark web where these criminal syndicates operate. 
and having done what I did in the government, I can tell you that they're not getting into all these criminal forums because you typically have to be invited in. You have to have some level of a association with these criminal forums. You got to be in the show. club. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, basically. <laughs> you got to be you in the club. <laughs> so I would, I would operate that they already have your username and password. It's not a fun thing to think about. Assume they have it. And if you do the things that we talked about, even if they have your initial username and password, you're still going to be protected if you're using two-factor. Yeah, I noticed like even on Google, they have, hey, we found these uh, accounts are compromised or these passwords are compromised. And you can go mm -hmm. in there and see, hey, what are my some of my old ones? It's, it's kind of hard to tell what's active and what's being mm -hmm. deactivated, but you know, at least, right. yeah. you know, but especially for those people that are using the same password for multiple sites, Exactly. We change that, please. <laughs> it, 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 to me, it's about practical security. It, it, from my standpoint, I don't have a unique username and password for my 50 different um, username and passwords for the different tools that I go into. But I like to risk rank them and think about it from the lens of the criminal. What accounts do they really want to get into? We talked about your financial accounts. So you, you want to use a unique username and password and two-factor. Your phone, your email, um, the, any payment service you're using, you know, the Zellies and uh, Venmos of the world, I would use, you know, a unique username and password. Your social media accounts, you don't want someone going in there and manipulating those. They're, most of them, you want to make sure you use unique username and passwords. And if they offer two-factor, leverage it. Yeah. By the way, I don't attach a debit card or my bank accounts to any of the online payment services if I don't have to. I just put a credit card out there so I'm not exposing you know, any particular wealth, so I don't have to worry about that too much. So are you suggesting PayPal is not good then? Because I use PayPal all the time. Is that a bad no, no. No, I'm not suggesting any of them are, are bad in any stretch. I would leverage. Oh, my God. Yeah, I would just. <laughs> no, this is not doom and gloom. This is no, more empowering. All great notes. I feel empowered. I'm learning a lot. So, but you're, so I should go directly with the credit card versus PayPal then. Well, here's a couple of things. If you're going to give anyone your actual bank account or your debit card, make sure you leverage the security feature sets okay. like two-factor. It's okay. going to be, uh, you know, that, then you'll be in much better shape. Um, but if they allow you to use a credit card, so I have Venmo account, I only use a credit card. I do have to pay an extra percent or two if you're using the credit card. So I'd rather have that trade-off where I'm not exposing any wealth and pay that extra percent or two. But if I did, because some services won't, they'll, they'll force you. I think eBay is one of them that you have to give a, an account to get your payment. Then I would just make sure that you lock it down further. You have two-factor authentication on that. And, or get the alerts too. All right, Gary. Exactly. All yeah. right, I'm taking notes. You know, and I, you <laughs> use the term cyber hygiene. Is does all of this fall under that that category? Is this have we, have we exhausted that term, or is there more to it? Well, there's certainly other things you can put into the prudent cyber hygiene. Or last month was Cyber Awareness Month, so. Yeah. CISA.gov is a good website. They want everyone to be cyber smart. So same concept. I don't like to give a dozen things because in my experience, if you give people a dozen things to do, you they may not do the, 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 the most effective ones. So when I kind of risk rank them, uh, you know, the two factors, I obviously my, my favorite, you know, freezing your credits, another good one. Leveraging alerts we talked about. I think that's good cyber hygiene. The other part of cyber hygiene is you want to make sure that you're keeping your systems updated. So your operating systems, if you're using antivirus or spyware protection, which is good cyber, uh, good cyber hygiene, make sure you keep it updated. I'll use the auto updates. You want to use trusted networks. It's good cyber hygiene to make sure you're leveraging a tr trusted network, like one you control and you can put security features like your home and or your data plan versus using a public Wi-Fi. You know, when you're out and about, I personally won't use public Wi-Fi if I have my own data plan. You know, so that way I'm not... I'm more confident that there isn't some rogue Wi-Fi or what we'll call an evil twin. How do you know that the that, guy in the next room Wi-Fi? Right. Or a free Starbucks Wi-Fi number one. Or, you know, <laughs> so so in any event, those are a few uh, cyber hygiene items. And we have uh, we have some materials that we can make available to you as well that cover yeah. a few other things. Like a you know, password. Yeah, we'll put the materials too in the notes of the podcast. So Anybody can Beautiful. So yeah. here we use a password manager. I, I use one personally. We have one for the business. Um, and there's several out there. You know, OnePass, Dashlane, or I mean, the list goes on. Uh, we encourage clients to use them. But the question is, what if someone hacks the password keeper? You, you put in all this effort to put all the information in this. 
you know, this database that's secure and then you, you forget. What do you do? <laughs> no, it's a good question. So first off, I applaud you. I'm a fan of password managers. So um, it's a, just a nicer way to efficiently organize. You can audit your passwords. You can have many that are the unique username and password versus reusing. And you mentioned a number of good ones. I would just do a little research. You can Google um, password manager PC magazine or password manager CNET. Pick one that's highly rated. I happen to use LastPass. I'm not trying to sell LastPass. Yeah. Whichever one you pick, make sure you keep the auto updates because these companies that do it for a living, they're not going to be doing it for a living if there's you know a major hacks on their system. So they take most of the highly rated ones. They, they take it very serious. Use two-factor authentication. You're going to significantly protect. Yeah. So when I log into my password manager, it's a master password that's unique, and I use two-factor. So the chances of somebody being able to access it, it would have to be some breach on their end. And I'm not suggesting that's likely. But to answer your question more directly, if someone accesses your password wherever they are, whether it's in a password manager, someone breaches wherever you're storing on your computer, if you're using two-factor authentication in the important accounts, they're still not getting into those accounts. So I can't emphasize that enough. You can't store two-factor codes on a password manager. They only last 30 seconds and they only work once. So if you think worst case, if someone breached my password manager, I'm not worried about getting them getting into my bank account or my brokerage account based on that because I use two-factor. So you can sleep better at night. So that's one of the reasons I we leverage the two-factor. If you have your alerts turned on, you get the notice that somebody tried to access your account and hey, there's is exactly you and yeah, mm -hmm. great. And so, and again, thank you for hitting all the points that we cover with our clients. <laughs> and right. for, for those clients that are listening that have come to us and when they come into our meeting, they pull out their their spreadsheet or their printed thing with all their passwords handwritten on it and you know who you are, <laughs> this is exactly what we're talking about. No, and, and, and I actually, I'd rather have someone have it on a written document where you know they can use their own coding system than have it unsecured on their computer. Yeah. Um, so it, because the chances, most of the people coming after us are overseas. Most of them are operating these syndicates from Russia, Ukraine, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Them, you know, lurking to come bust into your house and uh, and find your your list of passwords is, is unlikely. Yeah. And just you know, cut out a book and put it in the middle of your book in your library. Even if they do break, and I doubt they're going to be reading your books. Scary! Don't say that. We're trying to get them. <laughs> <laughs> it's much better to use a password manager, though, without question. And and don't put it on the post-it underneath your keyboard. Yeah. But, no. Yeah. yeah. That's like the key under the mat. <laughs> so what about um, biometric security, like you know, fingerprints on your phone or the face recognition sure. that we all know doesn't work with a, with a face mask on now? What about, what about those biometrics? So I like, I use the thumb when it's offered and I use face, the face ID as well. But where I look at the security there is if someone steals my phone or a device or I lose it, I think that's a, it's a much better level of protection than a four digit code. And that's where I kind of leave the security of the, the thumbprint in the face. A lot of us will use the thumb or the face as a, as a login mechanism. So when I log into my account at Fidelity, I'll use, I happen to have an iPhone, I'll use the iPhone as my face ID. I don't consider that a security feature. That's actually convenience. It just means I don't have to type in my username and password with my finger. My face is translated. And when firms do that, what, what we're doing is we're leveraging the stored username and password on the device. So the face is converting uh, the, the face ID is converting you know, my face to the real username and password. So the institution is actually getting my real username and password. So if there's malware on this device, that credential harvester is still getting my username and password if I'm using a thumb or a face. So you still need to use two-factor authentication if you're using your thumb or face to log into those important accounts. So just uh, something to think about there. But the biometrics are awesome. I mean, I think they're, they're, they're very good. Voice particularly is, is much better now. So where it's offered, where if you have your wealth, wherever your bank or your brokerage account is, if they're, if they're giving you the option to have voice biometrics, and I can, I can only speak for the one we use, in, in my view, it's more secure than typing in your, your username and password on your phone or, or saying your username and password to a representative. The, the voice biometrics now are actually a digitized algorithm 
it's not a recording. It's actually a, it's a, um, it's an algorithm of your a, a voice print of your voice. So it's a bit more secure. So even if you don't use the phone channel of your institutions, I typically never call my bank or call up Fidelity to do transactions, but the bad guy could. Yeah. So it's still worth taking advantage of the security features of the of your institution's voice biometrics and two-factor, even if you're not, you know, the folks listening to this get to work with you and your teams, and a lot of them probably leverage your, your teams. Well, let's say they don't log on to their bank, so the brokerage accounts to do online transaction. It's equally importantly to set up those security feature sets because the bad guy will try to emulate you. So... Hopefully that's of some help. So it used to be, Gary, like back in the day, you call a bank, they mail you the code, you have to wait 14 days to get the code, you call it in, and that's how you get authenticated. Now it's, you know, extra fancy, you have your dual authentication, you, you know, mm-hmm. have the code via email, text, phone call, whatever. Now, and then, then there's biometric, you can use your face, you can use your thumbprint, mm-hmm. you can your voice. What's next? How is this going to evolve? I can't even imagine or fathom how it's going to advance in the future. What other options are there? <laughs> well, you, you listed a lot of them. I, I think there's going to be a push to, because voices have gotten more secure to let, and they're a lot easier. So you don't have to, some of the systems like ours, you don't have to say a certain phrase. You just mm. speak normally. So they're very likely that's going to be used more for the two-factor authentication than actually having to load up a password authenticator or get a code. So there's that that's that's starting to come out is my understanding. We're doing a bunch more testing on that. Fascinating. So there's there's different levels of biometrics. I think there'll be more biometrics coming out, you know, whether it's the veins on your wrist, you know, certainly retinal scans have been around for a while. So there's a higher degree of security of some of that, and it's a little bit easier for folks. So uh, another thing you mentioned frequently in your presentation is talking about your your digital footprint. Mm-hmm. And I'm you know. I, obviously, that includes what what's on social media and what you post on social media. Is there is there more to it than you know? You don't want to say, "Hey, everyone, whole family on vacation, out of town for two weeks, house house wide open. Come take what you want." <laughs> Although some people do inadvertently, right? They're like right. in that social media image of the airplane taking off or whatever. Right. Yeah. Un- unbeknownst to them, sometimes they'll. Folks, whoever is traveling with the family will will throw a photo out on social media. And if the metadata, if your location services weren't turned off when you took that photo, and most people keep those on because they want to have the photo album be sorted and whatnot. Well, those photos have a file in them which have latitude, longitude, date and time. So you just want to be careful to, to be posting photos um, during the vacation with your location services on. But to answer your question, I'm a big fan of people understanding what you put out because I'm a believer in not taking things away from folks. I love people to leverage the tools and techniques of the internet if you'd like. My dad, who's fortunately still with us, he loves Facebook. I would never dissuade him from using social media like Facebook. He loves to see the photos of his kids and grandkids. He's a text madman with you know whatsapp and his you know my kids and other kids i would never take that away but there's two things i like people to understand one what you put out there for well-intended purposes on social media platforms and on the internet the bad guys will look for that to use it against you so know what's out there and have your antennas up and the second thing i love for people to understand is you want to have family consistency So what I mean by that is you may have someone within the family that has a lower profile that doesn't use social media and doesn't have a big presence. That's all well and good. But if other folks in your family, say a spouse, a partner, a kid or a grandkid has a different level of discretion, that other individual is just as exposed because the bad guy is going to come in through that link. And just the way criminals think, there's really two theories are two approaches to fraud that I'm talking about that these criminal organizations operate under. One we refer to as indiscriminate targeting or the wide net approach. They don't know who the victim is. So they set these traps with websites and all these inbound phishing emails and phishing texts. And so they don't know who actually is gonna fall prey to that. That's one method. 
which is very effective, particularly in a time of crisis, because there, there's a high take rate of people opening up, say, a text message that relates to contact tracing, when in fact, it's not a contact tracing text coming to you. It's actually the bad guy who emulated one. You click on it. Now you get malware. Yeah. Not a good scenario. Uh, but if you're using two-factor and you have good cyber hygiene, you're going to be fine. The second method, which is more specific to digital footprint, is what we call the whaling technique. This is where they're going after the big fish. They get lists of people that they think have some wealth, and you don't have to have 50 or 100 million to get on these people's lists. They, some of them like to stay under the radar. But when they get an individual's name, and they can just simply run zip code, say Newport Beach, give me all the property owners that have property that is over a million dollars. They're going to get a long list. They're going to get your and I's name. Then what they do is they'll do some, they'll do their own digital footprint. They'll draw that circle around the entire family and do an, uh, an analysis on everybody. They'll look at social media. And one of the reasons they'll look at social media is they want to find out what are your passions? They want to pull at your heartstrings. So they want to find out where do your kids or grandkids go to school? What's your favorite charity? So if you're listing those things on, say, your LinkedIn profile or a corporate bio that you know, because we all love to talk about in, a, in the, for the right reasons. Hey, I'm on the, you know, the president or whatever of the Boys and Girls Club of America. Well, they'll get that information, which is not hard for them to find. Then they'll send an email from that organization. And that's where they embed the malware. And your guard may be dropped a little bit because you're not expecting your cybersecurity or hygiene is not up. Because you're all right, you're, you're passionate about that. So my point is, just know what's out there. I like people to hire someone to do an actual digital footprint analysis on the family, so you can get a point in time snapshot of here's how we really look to the criminal, and then you can use the security feature sets to you know protect your accounts by using maybe two factor or limiting it to just your friends. Or sometimes you can't get that removed. Sometimes you can, like the pictures of the inside of your homes that we were talking about. You know, the realtor didn't remove the video of the home you just bought, you know, until three or four or five years later. You can get that stuff removed. Some things you can't, though. So I like people to just understand, here's what's out there. So you can have your antennas up a bit more if you're getting an email or some sort of inbound call from something you thought was private. Is there a way to do an audit? So, like, you know, a lot of these social media sites it's a little set it and forget it, right? You, you register, you, you do the things to get access. You've used them for 10 years now, but are there any, you know, one-on-one things to, you know, elect privacy elections or settings that we should double check that are kind of the blanket rule across the board? Sure. So there's some good information on some of the uh, cybersecurity organization sites, like CISA is, a, is, is one good one, CISA.org. They have some cyber tip sheets, particularly to social media, kind of a hard card on some of the settings and they change. So it's worth staying up on those. But I first like people similar to, you know, what I was mentioning on understanding who the adversary is. Um, and same with if we have time to talk about home safety, I like there to be a risk assessment done. So a risk assessment of how you look, get, a, get an audit done of how you really look. It's just, it's not a matter of just Googling your name. Um, although that certainly would be helpful to do that. But there's some data aggregators you could sign up for, like Spokio or Truthfinder. It's, you know, with a click of a, a mouse within you know, 10 minutes, you have a whole dossier on you and your family. But there's other things that these firms that you could hire can, can look at. Just give you an understanding of how it, how it is, what reality is. Right. You know, you, you talked about uh, you know, one of the topics we want to make sure we hit. We have some elderly clients, and then we mm -hmm. certainly have elderly parents of, of clients. And we discuss a lot of this with people as part of our normal practice. And, you know, so good news, we've received a few calls that are saying, hey, I received this email. They're asking me to send account information. Mm -hmm. Is this legitimate? And we're like, no, <laughs> you know, do not, the prince is really not trapped in the other country and you're not going to get part of his fortune, trust me. Um, but, and it's, it's kind of crazy how many of these there are that you mentioned, like you don't know who you're going to get. Right. You're certainly targeting the elderly, right? And, mm -hmm. and so is there, are there things that we can do specifically to help protect, 
you know, our sure. love on these from these elder scams? Uh, a couple of things. I have a lot of passion in this because most of the the work I did as an undercover agent, that the fraudsters were targeting this demographic, and it wasn't just based on age. You know, that was a lot of it, but it was based on them having an understanding that there may be some form of dementia, some form of diminished capacity, or maybe they they lost. And this is what really it's gut wrenching, but life hits and you lose a spouse and, and people are more vulnerable and they take their time to ingratiate themselves. I've got hundreds of hours of tape recording on how good they are and how patient they are, where they gain their trust. So a couple of things that I would do is understand what the schemes are. So uh, there's a lot of good resources out there. AARP actually, don't, don't uh, make fun of me. I'm a member of AARP and I love them. They're great. Uh, they, have something, they have something called the Fraud Watch Network. So that's a good resource to sign up for that where you can get proactive uh, information on the latest schemes. The one I mentioned where they're trying to ingratiate themselves to a loved one who lost a spouse, we call that the romance scam. And that's been going on for decades and they're so good at getting very, very close over time. And they typically don't try to take the money in one transaction, whether it's the romance scam or other scams to convince someone, um, they'll, they'll do it over time. So you have a chance to catch it. So a couple things is I would pick at least one trusted party, ideally two, that's close to this individual. I'd be very empathetic. You don't have to take away this individual's you know, ability to trade stocks or move money, but I would have this trusted party stay educated on the scams and the coronavirus. There's a, there's a, there's different schemes that they're targeting folks. So there's a decent website out there, fbi.gov backslash coronavirus, and they have some different scams out there. And there's another site the FBI has, fbi.gov backslash scams and safety, where they have a, a glossary of, of some of the scams. But I'd get educated and then I'd have this trusted party get view access into their accounts. They don't have to have trading authority or ability to move money, but at least they can have access maybe once a month, once a quarter, look for potential suspicious activity, get alerts. These individuals can at least look to see. And sometimes it's unfortunate. And it's actually over 50%. We have a whole elder fraud abuse group that used to be, you know, reporting to me when I ran all the investigations for Fidelity, very talented people that keep up on, on these scams. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of them are trusted parties already that are known to the victim. Right. And, you know, and I've heard all the excuses, I'm doing all the work, or I'm going to get the money anyway, when I used to work these cases, and that's not what the, that individual or the family wanted. So it's worth having someone monitor. I made these same comments, um, you know, Sarah and Paul, it's probably two years ago now, I was at a, did a luncheon in Kansas City, and an individual left the luncheon called his brother up and he said, hey, have you checked mom's accounts recently? And he said, dang, I haven't checked them in two years. Mm -hmm. And they had gotten view access into the accounts. Well, they went and checked and a woman had ingratiated herself into their mom's care team. Took her about two years to do it. And she did two things, convinced their mom because their mom was under this individual's ether, as we call it, got changed to the beneficiary on the life insurance policy Pretty sure the family didn't want that. Yeah. And secondly, convinced their mom that she was going to help pay bills. So she was a signer on the bank account. They went to the bank that afternoon and there was wire instructions to move 300 grand. It was a wet signature on it and they stopped it. This stuff happens more than people think. So if you put a couple of trip wires in, I mean, as you know, you can have a, a good chance of catching it. Absolutely. I and mean, you mentioned, Gary, uh, home security. So obviously, mm -hmm. you know, we don't do a breaking into our homes. Mm. <laughs> but what are other ways people might get access that we don't think about or, or stuff that, you know, sure. we may not normally think about protecting? So the same concept, as I was mentioning in the cyber world, you want to make yourself a, a less attractive or more difficult target. So and that, that's different things for different people. So a few things that I would do is one, I would make sure you have a relationship with your local law enforcement. If you don't have a personal relationship with your local chief of police or sheriff, it's really important in my view. They're the ones that are going to um, be responding in a time of a crisis. And, you know, another theory I like to make sure people understand, which I know sounds common sense, but the time of a crisis, that's not the time to come up with a plan. You want to, it's, it's about emergency preparedness. Right. Again, you're touching on our points. Thank you. Gary. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, but even me included, I mean, I spent a lot of years as an undercover agent, as I, as I talked about, I was trained in having a plan and a lot of us don't prioritize it until, you know, there's a, there's an issue or a crisis. And then we have this call to action. 
they had to move my family not once but twice for security reasons. And I'm in the business. I just never thought I had this strategy of hope. I hope it didn't happen to me. Well, that's not a good strategy. So um, in any event, I, one of the reasons I like people to, to meet with their local law enforcement is they can have an adult conversation with you on, hey, here's what we're really seeing in your community. You can sign up for their reverse 911s. They will actually, many of them, and I've worked, there's wonderful men and women that are highly trained that can actually do a free assessment on your home. I like people like the digital footprint analysis. I like people that have an all risk assessment done on your properties. It's just like when you pay money to have a home inspector before you buy or sell a home, they give you that punch list of usually what's wrong with the house. Right. Um, you can have a security professional, you can have law enforcement do it for free, but I would actually hire someone as well. And most of them are former law enforcement and they can give you a nice, you know, all risk assessment on your home. And there's a number of components that they will include in that. You know, maybe lighting, it may be signage, maybe camera placement. They'll go through some scenarios that are realistic and not just break-ins. Break-ins are a good one to make sure you understand how to protect against them, but they'll give you some scenarios on, on how you can make yourself a harder target. And one of them is similar to what I just mentioned on the, the elder abuse is many of us give people keys to the kingdom, you know, whether it's a nanny or it's a house cleaner. And I'm not saying don't trust and love these individuals. You should, in my view, but you should also verify. It's the trust but verify model. So have someone do a background before you are given access and have some mechanisms in place, maybe changing the codes and maybe having, you know, a camera, but at least do a background investigation on someone that's going to have access on a regular basis or maybe driving kids or grandkids around and, you know, do a criminal, uh, you know, criminal uh, check, reference checks. And it's not that it happens that often, but it happens more than people think. And it often doesn't get reported. We had a scenario just one town away from me. This happened a few years ago. Randolph, Massachusetts, this woman appeared to be the perfect au pair nanny. Well, they took this family for $270,000 in a check fraud scheme. Had they just Googled her name, they would have found out she was arrested actually on the West Coast three years previous for the exact same scheme. Because a lot of us will, you know, take a reference from a friend and you know, no one maybe had have done any sort of background. So it's just, it's, it's worth, you know, doing the trust, but verify. You mentioned the, the interaction with law enforcement and, you know, a lot of um, people live in either um, neighborhood communities or, mm -hmm. or homeless homeowners associations and the law enforcement will come to your, your meetings, right? If you just, right, them, right. you just ask them, Hey, can you come and have, you know, one of the officers just stop by and tell us what's going on? What are you hearing in the neighborhood? They're, they're generally happy to do it. No question. It's in everyone's best interest. And they can give you some tips on testing your alarm. Any of us inherit alarm systems or installed new ones, and there's a lot out in the market now. And I'm a fan of having alarm systems. I wouldn't just pick one right out of the gate. I would have an assessment done first so you know what you're protecting and why, and you, know, you can customize that. But there's some great features um, that you can that you can install, and it's 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 worth having family consistency on how they're operating. You can use a distress code. That's one thing that you want to test maybe once a year with your local law enforcement. That if you know there's a, a scenario where someone's following you home, you can put a code in. Every alarm system I know has a distress code. It's basically a silent way to turn the alarm off that looks like you're turning the alarm. And the code going back to law enforcement or your alarm monitoring company. It's not a false alarm. It's, you know, this is the distress code. So it's just taken at a different level of, you know, exigency. And you right. want to make sure. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say that a lot of us are connecting more and more things to the Internet. Most people refer to it as the Internet of Things. So whether it's your thermostat or it's a, a camera that's connected to, you know, web, a webcam or. They're advertising know. refrigerators. I want to know why does your refrigerator <laughs> need to be connected to your phone? I don't know. <laughs> Well, it's, it, it's a convenience thing, but that's my, my you know, comment is it's about practical security. So there's definitely some convenience factors, but you can take advantage of the refrigerator. So, you know, when the filter is going to get changed, but make sure the, the default password that you're using, you want to change that to something you choose. Because a lot of people will just connect the default password that you're getting from your internet service provider or the webcam or whatnot. You may need to do that initially to set it up, but then I would change that to a password you pick. It'll be a bit more secure. And please, please, please do that for your Wi-Fi router. That mm -hmm. If you just got a Wi-Fi router and you set it up at mm -hmm. home and you're maybe we're just getting it set up, don't don't leave mm -hmm. it at, at the default setting. 
It, and my comments aren't meant to scare anyone. It's just more empower and education because most of the people on the cyber side, again, to my earlier point, they don't live here. They're not doing, you know, run around your neighborhood trying to hack your Wi-Fi so they can get into your brokerage account. So most of those crimes from overseas, you want to lock down that the other way. But there's there's other other things that you want to make sure that you keep keep safe and secure by uh, not using the default password. Oh, I'm feeling empowered, Gary. I'm feeling empowered. <laughs> okay, so we touched on the home security piece, but are there vulnerabilities with um, the digital versions such as Ring or Nest? I mean, is is the way to protect yourself adding that dual authentication? Is there anything else that we should be doing with those types of services? I would just make sure you speak to a professional that's doing the home risk assessment and they can guide you on how best to leverage your alarm system and which one. I wouldn't have the alarm company be the one that does the assessment. Right. Um, anyway, you know, from They're an independent standpoint. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, it's best to have that assessment done. And then how you actually secure that system and the features, I, then, you know, I would, I would trust the people that are doing that assessment to help you with that. But yeah, they, they change, you know, quite frequently, but um, yeah. So you want to make sure any access, remote access on the apps to log in, they're using a unique password if they offer two factor, it's the same concept. To log on, you want to the same tenants on password security we talked about. I'm hearing it loud and clear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> two factor, two factor. <laughs> and, and, and we're actually fortunate to have that right now. And, and the bad guys having that mindset that most people don't turn it on. So it's the people we're educated on are going to be more secure. And they actually interviewed a criminal recently, you know, take, take me aside and the folks that do this for a living, the, the and this, this criminal did this for a living, made millions of dollars. And they asked, he now wants to work his sentence off, of course, get less jail time. So they asked, you know, what's the one thing that would have stopped you from this? And you know what he told them? Multi-factor authentication. Yeah. So. Make so, it less convenient, right? Yeah. Mm. yeah. You know, one of the last things we wanted to touch on, but we, so we talked about home security, but as things are hopefully starting to get back to normal a little bit post pandemic, um, and hopefully we are more post pandemic than we are current, um, but people are starting to travel more. And maybe sure. maybe not abroad, but maybe you know domestically. Mm -hmm. Can you just give us a couple of things that to consider that for people that are starting to consider traveling away from mm -hmm. home? Sure. No, and I uh, I have a daughter that's in the travel industry, so it's near and dear to my heart. And we have a pretty robust travel security group and program at Fidel. We train our employees. So a few things to think about there, not just in the time of COVID, but anytime. And a lot of it's about situational awareness. And it's a similar concept, making yourself more prepared. Again, the time of crisis is not the time to come up with a plan. So you want to be aware of where you're going, where are the local hospitals, what are the crime rates and whatnot, and particularly on the international front. So you want to do a couple things, and they're all in the materials I think you'll make available. But I like people to register with the State Department when they're going overseas. And the reason I like that is there's embassies and consulates all over the world, and every one of them have a regional security officer that are assigned there on site. And if there's a crisis overseas, whether it's a national natural disaster or there's a terrorist incident, they're the on-scene commander. So it's helpful to register before you go. There's a program called STEP. It's a smart travel enrollment program. You just go to step.state.gov and you register. So when my daughter was traveling or when I'm going overseas, you register, you put in, here's where I'm staying, here's my emergency contact uh, number, here's the countries and the dates. That way, if there is an issue there, they'll do a wellness check. That's their job. They will track down that US citizen and give you real-time information on right. airports open, airports closed. So it's a, it's a nice way and you'll get good information from the State Department on the the local areas you're going to like the crime rates the hospitals and particularly with covid from a convenience standpoint as well as a security standpoint you want to make sure you're checking with the state department and the local government because with the quarantining rules different countries are doing it differently on where they may have people staying in a particular hotel or a particular you know quarantine spot and i'd, I'd want to know that before i'm going i just went over to ireland i had a great experience going over a few months ago uh, but you want to know all right if you did happen to have an issue what's the process so just do a lot of advanced planning there medical insurance is another one i love for people to make sure they have a dedicated policy 
that protects you and your family when you're traveling. That way, you know, if something happens, you get hit by a, you know, whatever, you're in a taxi, you get hit or you fall ill, particularly when you're overseas. I do not want anyone touching any one of my loved ones until there's some level of an understanding. And if you have a company, there's a couple of many reputable companies out there, they'll do two things for you. One, they will be your consultant. So they have emergency medical professionals with translators that can get on a phone bridge and help diagnose the situation. And you know, we have a, a robust program at Fidelity. We've had that happen a number of times to employees and you do not want them having to do something, you know, a surgical procedure. And that's not what you, that individual needed. And we've had situations where we've had a medevac. That's the second component is these companies have medevac plans in place. So you're not fumbling around. Time is of the essence. So I would register the State Department, have a medical insurance, and have some level of a plan in place. When I travel overseas or my family does, I like us to have a, a second wallet or purse. I refer to it as a throwaway wallet or purse. Not saying it's going to solve every issue, but I have a small wallet. It's got a driver's license that's you know expired. It's got a credit card that's in there. I have a little cash from that country. That way, and I have that more accessible, and I'll put my real stuff maybe in a zipper pocket, which is harder to get at. That way, if you're getting accosted, you know, I like to de-escalate situations as best as, as usually my first look. Even though I was on a couple of SWAT teams and I know how to handle myself, I'd rather de-escalate it, say, hey, here you go, take it and get out of here. It's, it's, it's less of an issue. Same thing if someone's breaking into my house. You know, I like to have other options. I've got to save that is a real safe. I'd call it my fake safe. I've got costume jewelry in it. I got a little cash. That way it's a, an opportunity for me to say, hey, settle down. Here's the safe. Here's the code. Or just take the dang thing. It's not even that heavy and get out of here. You want to, unless you've thought through something like that, then, you know, you're, you're in a less, you know, in, you know, situation where you can handle the situation. So travel similar. You want to, you don't want to wear, fancy jewelry and Rolex watches and big diamond rings when you're going overseas. Sarah. Or even, what's that? <laughs> I'm saying Sarah. <laughs> I'm like shamed. I'm getting shamed on this podcast today. <laughs> yeah, so, but it's, it's life. And, and a lot, unless you think through the scenarios ahead of time, yeah. and it's not fun to talk about, but you know, traveling overseas, it's just unfortunate. We've had terrorist incidents more and more over the last you know, 20 years. Stay away from crowds. So when you're in an airport, unsecured areas of airports, bus stations, train stations, who wants to stay stand in the crowd anyway? You want to just get it into your normal DNA. You stand off to the side because they're obviously looking for maximum damage. So you want to just be smart about it as, as when you're traveling and it becomes second nature. Yeah. And then the other thing for those people that do have those password managers that we keep recommending. Um, you can keep a copy, you can keep a picture of your passport, a picture of your driver's license, and a picture of your other IDs. And, and your credit card information. So if something does happen to your stuff, at least you have copies of that and you can prove that right. who you are and hey, here's, here's the photo of it, so. A great point. And, and I think backing up your critical documents, whether you're traveling or not, makes perfect sense. So that's part of home safety and security and travel. We have something that's free. You don't even have to be a Fidelity client called FitSafe. You know, we felt so strongly about getting access to trust documents or health proxies or whatever it may be, whatever the situation is where you can have a secure way to do that. So the same thing that you were mentioning, Paul, yeah, smart but, to do. And we have a, a client, we have a vault, a digital vault for our clients. And we encourage the same thing, you know, keep photographs of valuables for insurance purposes or keep your healthcare directive on there. So, you know, a lot of people have a healthcare directive because that's part of our, our checklist, mm -hmm. but you know, generally something happens, you're talking about in the midst of a crisis, you go to the hospital with your loved one, they say, do you have a healthcare directive? Yes, I do. But if it's available on your digital vault, you can just pull it up and go, yes, here, here it is. And, and I'm in charge and give me the exactly. So yeah. yeah. And you can have access to your password manager to get into that digital vault as well. Right. And that's the other thing I like about a password manager. If you know, my my wife is, is has access to it as well it's from from a convenience standpoint. Yep. Yeah. And, and then if you change the password, it just automatically updates. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Okay, Gary. Thank you so much. We've taken way too much of your time already, and really. No. I'm honored to spend time with you. Really, I've, uh, I'm passionate about educating on the standpoint of just doing a few different things in these areas and you can live your lives in a less stressful and, and more secure way. So thanks for having me. If anyone has follow-up questions, don't, don't hesitate to reach out. Yeah. Thanks, so Gary. We'll, 
Yeah, we'll include your materials in the in the footnotes. And, and of course, if anybody has questions, we can pass the information on. But really appreciate it. Thank you. My okay. pleasure. We know it's late for you back in Boston. So <laughs> <laughs> well, stay safe. Have a wonderful holiday season. Thank you. So that's our episode for today. Thank you for listening. If you found this topic interesting or useful, please let us know. Or if there are other topics you'd like us to address, let us know that too. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for joining us and thanks for being invested. The RAND Group is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The RAND Group and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for the statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. The RAND Group and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the author and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.